Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast where we cover 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. This is our 74th episode. We are in the midst of 1999 and we are covering Hedra Moldavar's All About My Mother. I was going to attempt to say <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> Go for it. Stop blaming me, Madre. Yeah, Not easy. Done. I am your host, Ben Phillips, and I'm joined, as always, by Matt Waters. This as we are in the very end of this miniseries, is obviously a me pick. We're getting into wanky foreign movie territory, which I have mostly stayed clear from this entire miniseries. This fine Sunday morning. Good. Very sleepy. Stayed up all night reading Batman Beyond comics, obviously. Breaking my own promise I wouldn't do the comics for the column of that bit. But that go into the realworld.com if you want to see any of that. But yeah, I'm, I'm here. And yes, we are firmly doing a you pick. However, it was obviously on my film study syllabus at university so not my first rodeo with all about my mother but yeah i i think you probably have stronger positive feelings for it than i do <laughs> so on your film syllabus like, what uh-huh. was the angle for having this movie as part of it because obviously <laughs> the person directing it fucking like is a is a absolute darling of film nerds like <laughs> yes i mean obviously he is so pedro is obviously kind of like probably the biggest gay director in the world and also probably probably also very much like everyone's first especially if you're coming up in kind of like 90s film studies he is your first foreign film director along with like Jean-Luc Godard and stuff like uh-huh. that yes they teach us French New Wave and then they're like also here's Pedro Moldovar there you go kids you know all about foreign fi- uh, film now you can't say we didn't teach you now let's do King Kong and Gone with the Wind <laughs> <laughs> So this is Pedro Moldovar's... He's, he's on some movies. He started working in the 1980s. This is, I think, the first time that he kind of like crosses over into the critical consensus category. Very pointedly, this is like his first film, I would say, tips over more into drama territory than comedy territory, which says an awful lot about kind of the American critical establishment's opinions on when you do a comedy movie. I don't like... It's that weird thing where, like, obviously Pedro is a little bit of a pervert. It's like, I think it's fair to say, like, he makes movies that are very gay, uh-huh. very, camp, very female heavy, like, lots of references to other texts. He is, like, and obviously also very deeply, deeply kind of, like, critical of Catholic Church. Wow, shockingly. <laughs> shockingly. which makes <laughs> Given it, how like, he lives his life, like, I can't imagine why. Yeah, but obviously it makes it a very potent mix of things to throw into a movie, and obviously throw in that, like, the gender identity stuff that he likes to play around with and obviously like i mean it's it, it's so fascinating to see this be a movie from 1999 so we are eight years on from Sons of the lambs you do actually have actual non-cisgender people playing non-cis people in this movie or playing transgender people in this movie compared to buffalo bill where we were at the start of this decade i, st- I do think the general consensus is this movie does fall down in some areas in regards to its trans depictions i think mostly down to the fact that like pedro is a cis gay man and whilst he is enmeshed in the community of trans people and non-cisgender people it's still somewhat of a blind side for people who are not actually trans or not or actually not cisgendered yeah and i mean for the most part I remain impressed at how progressive it is for, 90, for you know, the late 90s. But then, you know, there is definitely some stuff like the rant against drag queens and stuff like that feels a little bit warped. Some points are being made. I think I have heard some of these complaints before that certain drag queens, like, treat it as... Like, you're making a giant mockery performance out of gender and, and you're just sort of a tourist in this world kind of thing for the, for the, the theatrics of it and then you're back off to be a, a cis straight man you know but yeah like you know there's, there's a few 
things where it's like mm, clunky, but for the most part, like I yeah. mean, Agrado is like a legendary character in film history. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it, obviously, like the things are things like the first time we meet a transgender person in this movie in Agrado, they're getting beaten up, yes. which is not great. You have the fact that you do still have the thing where cisgender actors are playing trans characters. Mm. You have obviously the rant against drag queens, which I think is interesting in terms of the fact that I don't think many pieces of work are making a delineation between transvestitism, drag drag queens and, and transgender people at this point in time. And so to have a movie be released that wins an Oscar that is openly discussing the kind of the, the, the blurry lines. Yeah, of... I mean, when I was growing up, the T-slur was a catch-all for both transgender and transvestite. And it was just, it was just anyone who was whether you're cross-dressing or you're fully transitioning, like, it's all one thing as far as scared homophobic people are concerned. So, yeah, I, I guess this would be a, a delineation in that way. Um, the, the other big complaint I've also heard is there's a people see this movie as kind of having HIV panic, especially in regards to kind of Manuela's reaction to to Rosa having slept with, with Lola. There's definitely a very much thing like blaming Lola for her life choices and kind of like what's happened to her, which definitely doesn't sit well in kind of like a modern context but also because this movie is so thoroughly indebted to melodrama and kind of like Spanish telenovelas it, it tracks as like a character motivation and I think it's kind of got over and done with in that one scene where Manuela kind of like freaks out. I don't want to like make a statement that goes against my own values but I think when like you are very recently grieving your daughter I think that can massively warp your perspective on things. <laughs> like, yes. I mean yeah it, it's not like the world's most progressive movie but it's it's given it a good go and especially for like the late 90s as I said and, and in some ways it is like ahead of some things that are coming out now there has definitely been 20 years of discourse that has would probably make some of the problematic things a little bit better but yeah, yeah so obviously I watched this because I was like doing a thing where I was trying to catch up on as many Petra multiple movies as I could mm. he's obviously he, he is a genuinely fascinating director who is kind of probably one of the most singular like you know you're watching a Pedro movie when you're watching a Pedro movie yes <laughs> it's uh, and it's not just because it's like and obviously the the kind of the the regressive you would be oh it's gay it's colorful and it's got lots of women and it's in Spanish and I know his detractors sort of say it's like literally the same stuff every time around and then his defenders counter with like but isn't it impressive he can sort of find literally 25 ways to remix the same themes kind of thing like it's never the same characters and 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 premise i feel a lot of people do this maybe not to such an extreme but like they're kind of making the same thing over and over again because they have one idea in their head and they feel they're not quite getting it right or like you know you make what you know and you make what you firmly believe in yeah there's so many directors have a style or a recognizable i think it's just that pedro is also so there's so many movies there's a there's a new movie of his every like two or three years Mm. And I think, like, when you have that level of output, you can kind of get people to be sick of you a lot quicker. Like, <laughs> I mean... For, for Quentin like, has the good decency to barely make a film every... every yeah, like, exactly. Like, years. Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson are both directors who, like, they take their time with the movies and, like, we, we are about to have another movie set in the valley set in the 70s from Paul Thomas Anderson. He and, knows what he likes. And I'm sure Quentin will find a way to put feet and misogyny into into his latest <laughs> one and, and as many N-words as he can get away with, which should um, be zero, but... 
yeah. Plan, so yeah. I just I want to like so obviously you did this for films. Was this the only Pedro movie you did? Like, what was the context surrounding like? This was officially and... on the syllabus, but like we were encouraged to explore more. Um, I watched Volver like soon after. That's where I left it. But I know you know a lot of people went deeper than that. I know that like Broken Embraces. I mean, the poster for Broken Embraces is one of those. You know, we've talked about posters that everyone has. I feel like that's it's not the same crowd as the people who have the Fight Club poster and the Pulp Fiction poster. Well, maybe a little bit of crossover with the Pulp Fiction poster, but a lot of people have that Broken Embraces poster. I watched Volver and enjoyed it, but yeah, All About My Mother was the one that was like officially on the on the course. So. Yeah. So, what was what was the general consensus from the room? Because obviously, I get I get the feeling that a lot of people who do film courses are people who <laughs> I, mean, I didn't do it, but I have a lot of people who did film courses at university. And like, you do film because either you want to make movies, <laughs> and you maybe aren't so interested in the actual history of film, or if you are interested in the history of film, you do have a little bit of resentment for when you're forced to watch a movie that's outside of your wheelhouse. Like, I, I remember my friend did film school and was shown Irreversible. Mm-hmm. and was like he was ranting for weeks about how awful that movie was and obviously it's seen as like one of the best movies of the 2000s but it's it is fascinating to watch the contempt from film students who like there is always a movie from a course that you are shown and you're like oh my god this is a piece of shit even if it's like particularly yeah. like one of the 10 greatest movies of all time or whatever so when i was still studying film i was also doing a little bit of very bad sketch comedy and stuff and we as often as possible would like point out films film students are wankers and like i did it a lot of my friends did it i love them all but film students are wankers <laughs> like you just run the board of like there was a guy who in seminar one of semester one would just boldly was like i hate hollywood and it's like we have a whole module on like can, like classic hollywood coming up have fun with that but like just so aggressively like you know like it's kind of like that weeb thing of like they're taking it so far that like no westerner could ever possibly understand this theme or whatever and it's like all right dude calm the fuck down and yeah you definitely got some people who like i just like movies and they let you talk about it in in for a uni course that sounds fun and then they like they don't like movies <laughs> or like they like a certain type of movie and uh yeah, yeah they have the fight pop and pop fiction poster up in their room yeah it, exactly like they they like they like blockbusters they like watching movies like a little bit more regularly than the average person but generally they have pretty i don't like saying things like basic but you know that kind of taste and then yeah they do kind of freak out when it's like right we're gonna be watching some french new wave jean-luc godard is like possibly the greatest litmus test for someone who's a film student because like i know people who like i watched three jean-luc godard movies but all the ones i watched from this year were like his later kind of like magazine movies that are like super impenetrable impenetrable yeah i don't love french cinema or the the french cinema i was made to watch for the course no disrespect to anyone that is into anything like that but we are getting like the more extreme art house you get the more i'm generally turned off but i mean you know everyone's different i mean i fucking like iron fist so who am i to say anything about anything no i mean i I do think there's there's an impressionistic thing about some movies that definitely can turn me off like i love a vibe movie i don't like a movie where there is like literally nothing to like yeah and like that is that is generally the thing with i mean it's the stereotype of of that era of french cinema like they are obviously also that's the problem when you talk about foreign movies like all korean films are parasite you know all countries make all kinds of films 
But the stuff that, like, makes it out and becomes, like, the legacy of the country, unfortunately, colours people's opinion on, like, this is everything this nation makes kind of thing. So the kinds of films that we were made to watch and the kinds of films that, like, surround that is sort of defined by nothing actually really happens, does it? It's just kind of, like... It's just, ah, uh, it's just kind of a vibe, and that's it. And, and as someone who, you know, we've established on this this and other podcasts, I am kind of a plotty kind of a guy. I'm not really a director person. I'm a big performances and script writing person. So, yeah, French cinema is kind of my kryptonite <laughs> because it is just entirely director-driven. And not for me, but yeah. I'm, I'm more tolerant and like, and like, 10 years on than I was when I did film studies, so I'm much more like, you know, not for me. I, I'm glad you all like it. <laughs> Yeah, and like, this movie is definitely not. <laughs> is this maybe the least plotty movie we've done? Well, that's the thing. I was going to say, there is obviously a great love for his work in France, because, I mean, on some level, he is kind of drifting into that. It doesn't matter about the plot. Just just watch these people. But it's kind of, there's so much plot that it's almost impossible to explain. Like, there's so much plot, it almost comes back around again. Like, you couldn't explain the plot of this movie in a sentence. You absolutely could not. Yeah, and and to to explain the plot of this movie in a sentence, you probably have to spoil the opening conceit of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, it's so convoluted, and I think a lot of his work can be this way, where it's like, how did we end up here, kind of thing? But it's like, you know, it doesn't matter, is the ultimate point. (laughs) One of of the highest rated reviews on Letterboxd is, in fact, if I told you the first five minutes of this movie and the last five minutes of this movie, you would not believe me. (laughs) And it it very much is that. A mother and son sit down for a nice meal, and it ends with... Mother has a baby. Steals a baby. <laughs> Steals a baby. Is at a theater with the person who like sort of murdered her son, but not wow, really. Let's not say murder. But yes, yeah, contributed to the the manslaughter of her son. Sure. And their trans sex worker friend, who is also now an actor, say their goodbyes. Yep. Fill in the blanks. Someone dies. Yes. Two people die. Two, three people die. And only one of them shown on screen. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if it is intentional, where it's like, I'm going to make this so complex that people just give up on trying to follow it and just have a good time. <laughs> you know? like Because like for me, I've always found the first sort of half just so wishy-washy, kind of, like, it's so drifty, and then, like, eventually the characters get the hooks in you, and you're like, okay, yeah, cool, you guys do what you're doing. But, yeah, for me, that first sort of half hour, 45 minutes, I'm just like, uh... <laughs> but I think it's, it's so much of the first 30 minutes, the, the first 30 minutes, the first 45 minutes of this movie are, like, you don't really have an anchor for what these characters' history are, and he's kind of, like, deploying all these facts, like, we know that, like, something happened with the father of... The infamous Lola. The infamous Lola in regards to, like, the father of Esteban. We know that there is this obsession with, with Humorosia, like, like it, it's laying out all these things, and it's really not until you kind of have the the kind of the five central women or six central women of this movie kind of, like, actually bouncing off each other that, like, it starts to click, as you say. Whereas, like, oh, yeah. okay, so this movie is kind of, like, tying together all of these women's lives and having this, like, commentary on, like, what it means to be a mother and all these different kinds of motherhoods where it's, like, I think that's the fascinating thing. It's, like, obviously there's the tribute at the end of the movie where he says, like, to all, all mothers, to all people who want to be mothers, to all people who want to be women, like, and, and it's it's moving in itself, but, like, there's so much, like, commentary and, like, femininity and kind of, like, the way these six people interact where they're all different people, but they 
they all obviously have they're all from like ostracized communities and whatnot but it's just a fascinating blend at the center yeah i think ultimately like i have positive things to say about the movie overall but like it's 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 probably a weaker positive than i suspect you have for it because of of that fact that it is like it takes its time for for me it takes its time to like properly get its hooks in kind of thing like even even having seen it three times now and knowing who those characters end up being once you get give them a chance to actually do their thing as it were it still doesn't quite hook me in that first sort of half okay then so we are obviously talking about movies from 1999 we did box office last week so we need to head over to the 72nd academy awards matthew this movie was nominated for i believe one oscar which it won but do you want to run us down and break us down the, the 1999 Oscar Awards? Yeah, I mean, it, it is nominated for and wins Best Foreign Language Movie. A, a category that, like, did that even... No, that one's that one's decades old. Sorry, it's, it was when we were talking about something and, like, there was a category that just didn't exist when we were talking about it. Animated movie doesn't exist until 2001. Right, okay. But Best Foreign Movie does, and All About My Mother uh, defeats East West, Himalaya, Solomon and Gaynor, and Under the Sun. Probably deserved a look in at some, some acting awards, but hey, uh, this is the year of American Beauty, which wins Best Picture over the Sidehouse Rules, Green Mile, Insider, and The Sixth Sense. Decent year, I would say. It's it's a fascinating year for the Oscars because this is kind of one of the most infamously bad Best Picture lineups, just in regards to what other movies are out in 1999. Mm. Because, like, I mean, let's. Uh, I mean, we'll do the critical thing next year, but like, 1999 is widely seen as like this is the greatest year for American movies ever. There are just so many like slam dunk masterpieces released in 1999, and the Oscars come out with this. Like, you're like, well, The Matrix doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. When you look at that group compared to some of the the years that we've done, I would say it's stronger than those. But yeah, it probably isn't the five strongest movies from that year. Yeah, there's a, there's an entire podcast called Party Like It's or Podcast Like It's 1999, which is literally devoted to we are watching every single movie that released in America in 1999, and it's basically analysing like what this means as like this is seen as like the great year for American movies, and you've got things like David Lynch's Straight Story, you've got The Matrix, you've got the limey you've got dog was out this year she's all that deep blue siege you're like obviously some of these movies are like complete trash but like it's a fascinating year of like every single genre of movies that you could possibly want to see iron giant south park lock stock and two smoking barrels Austin Powers by Hugh Shagley being John Malkovich. Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2, Three Kings, Eyes Wide Shut, Ten Things I Hate About You, The Blair Witch Project. The Mummy. Talented Mr. Ripley, Magnolia, Office Space, as we discussed last week. All right, fair enough. Given that, it probably isn't the best lineup of best picture stuff and then you know but Sam, it's, but it's, so, it's, it's hard to go wrong with though though isn't it even yeah. if you throw like darts at a darts at a dartboard you still hit on like five movies that do probably i think the only one there that doesn't feel of a piece with everything else is side house rules mm. in terms of like i feel like every other movie on that list is something that you might go back to as like a movie that defines 1999 or at least is a work of a director who is interesting like the insider and michael mann Sam Mendes wins for Best Director. Got to keep that in lockstep. Being John Malkovich, uh, Spike Jones sneaks into the director category as like the only one that is not just mirrored from the Best Picture nominations. It just says redacted for Best Actor. Weird. Um, over Russell Crowe, Richard Farnsworth, Sean Penn, and Denzel Washington. How nobody from All About My Mother 
sneaks into Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress, I don't know. Some good work, you know, Hilary Swank, Angelina Jolie for Boys Don't Cry and Girl Interrupted, respectively. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got, like, Annette Bening and Julianne Moore and Meryl Streep and Tony Collette and, and, you know, all the big, big fucking names there. So it's obviously stiff competition, as it always is, because those ladies always bring it. But, like, come on, there's got to be a way to sneak in a couple of the people from all of them. Yeah, like, Celia Roth could be in this. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is probably, like, the secret of Pedro Moldovar is he is, like, probably the only director who's figured out what to do with Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. Other than be like, look how hot they are! Yeah, I feel like when they're deployed in American movies, there is some fundamental misunderstanding of what their law is as actors. It is always, like jarring to see somebody who like has has made it outside of you know has made it in in american movies and then to go back and watch them act in their native language and it's just it's like a di- completely different human being like some people like the entire tone of their voice changes when they're speaking their own language and like i always go back to that um it's from modern family i think where um sofia vergara is like i'm so smart in spanish or whatever <laughs> but well, i mean it's a commonly held thing where like when you you have people attempting to do another language or another accent you're, you're spending like a good portion of your time trying to nail how to say the words properly because yeah, you're very constantly like... reaching for the word the right words instead of just losing yourself in the performance so like Vanessa Cruz transforms from like that very hot lady we all like to like oh she's like a very nuanced actor wow <laughs> and Antonio Banderas isn't just sexy <laughs> Yeah, like, it's, it's, I'm just trying to think now, like, the amount of times that we complain about, like, movies casting someone who is British or Australian and making them do an American accent, and it's just like, just have a line of dialogue that they move to, to America. Like, you do not need to have this character be America to do this. Like, yeah, like, I mean, the most recent one we spoke about is, no one is willing to admit Benedict Cumberbatch is pretty shit as Doctor Strange. <laughs> and it's like, if you just let him be British, I bet you you would get a much better performance out of him. But then on the flip side of it, I watched The Power of the Dog last week, and my god he's so fucking good in that movie and he is doing another American accent and I don't know if that's because like he gives a shit about the material I mean he's obviously not going to try his absolute hardest for a fucking superhero movie but like I just figure like him on autopilot with his own accent is probably better than him on autopilot doing a bad house impression yes Um, it's deeply funny to me that there is like a a non-zero chance that Benedict Cumberbatch wins Best Actor this year, and then he's going to have like it sandwiched in between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange Two as like his two performances on either side of it. Yup, <laughs> Scooby-Doo this crap. But like, yeah, you do, you do definitely appreciate the work of of, of Cruz. Who, Cruz and Roth are both kind of like, you know, his some of his muses. They've been in like seven or eight of his films, something. Like he's, that. I mean, you go to his Wikipedia page, and he's got like that. Some actors, obviously, they have that like grid, don't they, of frequent yeah. collaborators. <laughs> and his is like kind of like thirty names across or whatever, like because he he does like working with the same people over and over again. Yeah. And I mean, I watched Pain and Glory a couple of years ago, and it, it it's a completely breathtaking performance. I probably would have had Antonio Banderas as my like favorite actor of 2019. Mm. Um, it's just a fucking stupendous performance. Yeah, based on that like the like, little speech of him weeping, I guess it's probably from near the end that went viral, and like that alone makes me want to see the film. So mm. again, like you watch the movie and it's just like, oh, it's it's uh, Antonio Banderas doing like crack cocaine for half the movie, or like heroin, <laughs> and then it ends with this like incredible speech from him about like the nature of love, and oh god, it's it's very very good. But we're not talking about Pain and Glory; we're talking about All My Mother. Matthew, how did that do? 
domestic box office. Obviously, we, we, we spent some time discussing that this movie, like, it does better internationally than domestically. Like, $60 million at the international box office, a mere $8 million at the domestic box office. But where does it land in its opening weekend? Well, opening in four theatres is probably not going to do well for it. But let's, yeah, let's start with the top ten. I'm sure it'll turn up near the bottom. So we got The Bone Collector, House on Haunted Hill, The Bachelor, The Insider, The Best Man, Double Jeopardy, American Beauty, The Sixth Sense, Music of the Heart, and Fight Club in its fourth week. Didn't see it there. I'm just going to skip down. We got Blue Streak at 19, Inspector Gadget at 28, Bowfinger at 35, The Iron Giant at 46, Tarzan at 48, Austin Powers The Spy of Shagged Me at 50, oh there it is, 51st, all about my mother making $110,000, just shy of $110,500, but ahead of The Red Violin and Run Lola Run, so that's something, but yeah, not even in the top 50 unfortunately, but I mean, four theatres... Big gay Spanish movie didn't have a chance in America, quite frankly. I'm, I'm, I'm now intrigued by the by theatre average, and it has it's the third highest by theatre average that's opened that weekend, which is yeah, really 12,000 12, per theatre, I think, is the average. Yeah, yeah, I have to imagine it's like every single person who's going here is like cinephile Spanish or gay. It's like like, yeah. I, what I have to imagine the crossover is between yeah. who's going to see this. I mean, it's making ten times the average of Fight Club per theatre it's in. Admittedly, Fight Club's in its fourth week, but still, that was a big fucking movie. It's that thing, like, you know, it, it's niche, but the people who want want to support it will come out and support it if you give them the opportunity. But, yeah, they didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, it ended up with a legacy, and it ends up with, you know, 68 million or something like that in the end off a just shy of five million did you say budget i think um so you know it's obviously massively profitable in the end it's just yeah in america like nothing i wouldn't call it nothing it's just one of those things but it's so interesting to look at like we've discussed obviously a lot of movies that either bombed in america and made no money internationally or if they if they did money internationally they also did money in america and it's rare to get that movie that kind of like doesn't not much in America, but like does really, really well internationally. Like you've got like there's more and more now as more countries have got established film industries and there's obviously like communication between like the fact that China have three movies in the top ten highest grossing movies of twenty twenty one and you could not see any of those movies in <laughs> the States. Wasn't that that story? There's like a there's like a war movie about China defeating the American army at some point that's become the biggest movie ever or something. It's like. the biggest it's the biggest international movie ever. Uh, it's got like six directors and it was basically released on a Chinese national holiday with the expectation that if you want if you like China you'll go see this movie. <laughs> is, like, it, is it like Band of Brothers but like in one go kind of thing? It's it's like Band of Brothers but if it was directed by Michael Bay. Okay, okay. Cool. It's you see all these Americans freaking out and it's like you guys make 200 of these movies a decade <laughs> like there's that Frankie Boyle sketch of like America aren't just going to come to your country and beat you in a war. They're going to come back twenty years later and make a movie about how sad it made them to kill you all. Kind of thing. <laughs> that is the thing. It's like if you're making a movie about terrorists, you just have like a dartboard, and it's like what country in Eurasia is going to be the aggressor <laughs> in this conflict? Yes. As we shift from they're all Russian to they're all Middle Eastern, and now they're all probably going to be like Chinese and, and Southeast Asian kind of thing. It's like oh look how the prejudices move. I. I 
I literally read a review this morning of Olympus Has Fallen that was basically just like, this is anti-North Korean propaganda at its finest. <laughs> what fun American movies are. And I mean, yeah, it, it's about time in other countries. But like, yeah, that, that's the point, is that like, there is obviously a critical community surrounding Emil Moldovar that is obviously going to support his movies, whether or not that's in Spain or France. Like, he, he obviously doesn't make movies that... Obviously, they're movies that Spain supports. Like, you have the fact that like they are nearly always on the shortlist of movies that we need to send to the Oscars, but how much of that is, this is emblematic of the art we want people to think Spain is making, or is it, we know the Americans eat this up like anything, so we need to send it over there as like, on a plate. I'm not 100% sure. Let's talk about something very not American to to counterbalance all that horrific American cinema. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, the, the, the plot of this movie is, as you said, like, very complex. So let's just kind of, like, I want to nail the wimp theme of the I think all the characters are so really fascinating and so richly developed. Like, Cecilia Roth as, as Manuela is... It's an interesting movie because obviously so much of this movie is pushed forward by her grief and like so she lives alone with her son, has a very weird conversation with her son at the top of this Can movie. we just acknowledge that the actor playing Esteban believed his assignment was he wants to fuck his own mum? <laughs> because that's very clearly the energy he's putting into that performance. <laughs> I know different cultures are, are, are different levels of affectionate with family members and friends and stuff in a non-romantic way, and I'm probably just viewing it with a wet, you know, a British... Repressed, sexual, repressed British. Yeah, but that dude wants to fuck his mum, man. <laughs> uh, just that entire conversation where they're both kind of like, talking about like, oh, well, you'd have a big dick, and it's like, do you want a big dick inside you? <laughs> Would you prostitute yourself for me? It's um, it's quite something. But yes, he's a big fan of his mother. Wants to be a writer. They're watching All About Eve together. And, and that's where you get All About My Mother from. Because he wants to write a play about her, or a book about her, or one of the two. Yeah, um, it's, I, I, one of my favourite things is when you discuss the, like, the, the nuance of translation in different languages at the top of the movie. And it's like, yes, <laughs> give me this nerdy shit about <laughs> why, why the Spanish translation of the title of All About Eve is bad. Yes. And it does end up being a nice sort of... Like, it all has to tie together very neatly, as, as like, Marocha is, like, you know, she took her stage name for Bette Davis, and, and, and they all have that thematic link together and everything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's important to say at the top of this movie is that, like, there are so many references to high melodrama, theatre and mm. cinema, and not only that too, but to, like, gay writers of the past, where, if, like, Capote comes up, All About Eve comes up, they literally go see Streetcar Named Desire for mm. her son's birthday. It is, like, again, seen it three times now still fucks me up to see streetcar performed in any language but english you know like it's like whoa what, what's going on and I, I never stop and think like there was news that like hamilton is opening in japan soon or whatever and i just never stop and think oh my god i want to go and see hamilton in dutch and japanese and, and like all these other languages just to like see what it's like um, yeah i mean and obviously there's so much wordplay yeah hamilton. exactly like how the fuck does that translate and there's so much like like i know probably more more than the average person in this country that's going to go see it about that period of history but like how does like random person what does random person make of these like deep like historical cut jokes who knows but yeah like it, it's it's a fascinating view like obviously there are references to like, spanish writers like mm -hmm. the, at the end of the at the end of the movie they're they're staging a uh no or 
there are references to kind of like to to Spanish creators, but an awful lot of it is kind of classic Hollywood, classic Hollywood that is kind of very much fronting forward kind of like independent women or like very strong, forceful women. But there's also stuff that's been taken over by uh, queer viewers in in recent years and stuff like that, which is obviously why Omar is kind of putting it in there, where like it's it, it, and it all kind of like meshes together, where like you've got the fact that Manuela met Lola whilst performing in Streetcar Named Desire as she's not Blanche, is she? She's Stella. She she plays Stella. Yeah. And Lola is her Stanley. And like everything is like integrated and like it's like nesting dolls within nesting dolls. Yeah, and everything of, like, everything comes back around and like she even has that line of dialogue like that streetcar has like shaped my life essentially. <laughs> to meet Lola there, to lose her son after that night, to then, you know, perform in it 20 years after she first did and, and everything like that. And it's the same staging of the thing that killed her son. Yeah. And, like, we don't... I mean, we only see a few scenes from it, but it's like she's, like, effortlessly better than everyone in it. <laughs> but that's probably, you know, selectively. Like, let's show let's show uh, Manuela's, like, best scene versus just a, a random scene from the other people. But, yeah, it's cute in that way that, like, all these things keep recurring. And that's obviously what Amor was going for, is, like, again, he's playing into that, like, melodrama, that, that telenovela style mm. of thing, where it's like, let's take the... how heightened these worlds are. Let's take the fact that like there's so much coincidence let's take the fact that there's so much kind of like things that like wouldn't normally happen like you wouldn't have the fact that like the second person that Manuela meets when she gets to to Barcelona is also the father or that is also the mother of a child born from the same person like but let, let's take all this stuff seriously let's 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 not have it be played for high camp even though this movie can be camp at points like let's pretend that these are real people and that like these insane coincidences are happening to people who actually have real lives who actually have real emotions and process them in in realistic ways that isn't like what happens in Streetcar Named Desire which is obviously so theatrical and so over enthused like all, all I can think when I think of Streetcar Named Desire is Simpsons episode <laughs> think of and but just how big the performances that like are normally in streetcar and how like yes there are big performances in this movie but it feels so much more grounded in like real emotions than mm. you would really get from like if, if this movie had been played more comedy it definitely would have been bigger and people like it, it's such an interesting kind of like mesh of filmic touchstones and emotional touchstones and identity and so like, again it's i adore this movie but it's very hard for me to kind of like lay out in a track of kind of like what my emotional journey is through it because it's it's doing so many things that kind of tick so many interesting buttons for me i think you just have to kind of like let it happen in front of you for a while and then eventually... yeah i mean exactly and it's like it's, it's fun to watch it and go like so the scene when um, Esteban dies is obviously a recreation of John Cassavetti's opening night. Again, he, like, Amodovar is just plop it, like, plucking things from, like, classic Hollywood and classic Americana and, like, putting it into this movie and, like, just shaking it up, essentially, and seeing, like, what would happen when you get to the end of it. Yeah. So, yeah, so after her son dies, like, oh, it, it's I mean, it, it sucks that, like, obviously, like, he desperately wants to know about his father and he's clearly asked more than once and, and he has that, like, I can't decide if it's good or bad poetry kind of thing because I mean obviously he wants to be a writer and like he's 17 
I think something like he's that. Either, he's either 17 going 18 or he's 16 going 17. I, I, I can never quite track it down. Sure. So, like, odds are he's a shit writer, but never mind. And he has that line about, like, mother shows me all, shows me all these pictures, or I found all these pictures of mother with half of them cut out, and that's how I feel. And it's like, like he's got half a life because he doesn't know about his father. And the night she at last agrees to tell him about his father is obviously the night he dies. And, like, you know, again, that's maximum melodrama, like, in real life that's not how those things go um yeah it's it, it sucks though obviously like he's he's having this like perfect day with his mother who he wants to have sex with going to see a play going to learn about his father gonna get an, uh, an autograph from uma and then uh yeah he dies and then yeah i mean it's it's funny to me that this movie opens up with so much content about organ transplants right like- that is my whole thing thing of like what was the point in her be i know it establishes that she's like a nurse and so that helps i suppose well is she even a nurse or does she just work around other i don't know but like she she is a nurse who basically like is in charge of like communicating which organs are yeah. like safe to take out and stuff like that so like obviously a surgeon is going to do it but she's the one who's like this is what the reading is i'm going to go tell the, the organ transplant uh, facilitators like what organs we have where do they want them sent i'm going to be managing that part of it. And they make such a big thing about all the transplant stuff, even to the point of, like, having the same people doing the interviews, or, or like, you know, we, we don't have much time, please, can we use your dead loved one's organs for whatever and like she like breaks all protocol and like traces her son's heart to the person who received it and like just stalks them from afar and then just quits her job and like what was what was the point in any of this <laughs> but i think it's just it's just to show like how broken she is without this without i, I understand like, that but like i just always think of it feels like it needs to have a button on it. Like, yeah, at some point. I guess I like, just like, I like things to be a little bit neater than this. Where like I always think about your runtime and how like it's all a like negotiation and every minute has to count and stuff like that. So like for me, I'm like, could we have somehow tightened this or lost it all entirely or done it in a way where it it does sort of link something about a transplant comes up later in the movie and she is then uniquely qualified to help or something. I I don't know, but that's me wanting to like fit things into pegs that they're not yeah, I mean, designed for. It's obviously, like, if you watched The Flower of My Secret, obviously that is another movie which organ transplants, and it makes it feel like it's kind of like a sequential story in a Modibar's career where he's kind of like playing off something that he's done beforehand, but... Yeah, like, that's all about transplants, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is It is what it is, but it just, it's it, just it, like, okay, I'm str- you know, and it, it's, I, I, it, it's it, not unforgivable, but I've always just been like, why does she need to have this little 15-minute section? I don't know, but... It's similar to modern-day Simpsons, to, to continue the Simpsons references episode, it's like... <laughs> where you have the, your five to ten minute opener that then unlocks the actual plot. <laughs> yes, that has nothing to do with anything that comes afterwards, and yeah, you kind yeah. of go, oh, we're not, we're not circling back around to, like, what happened in the first five to ten minutes. That was just a, yeah. a different adventure that we went on. That's, that's like, a, an episodic cartoon show that is basically a sketch show as it is, so, like, I can kind of overlook it there. <laughs> rather than, like, a tightly wound narrative that plays out over a hundred minutes. But never mind. But, I mean, I think it does play into the themes where it's, like, how many lives can you touch? Yes. Like, you're existing. And and obviously, like, they kind of lose track of Esteban because they have Esteban 1 and Esteban 3 to kind of, like, get to (laughs) it. But, yeah, I mean, this whole movie is all about kind of, like, the ways that you, like, can have an impact in people's lives and the way that you can care for people. Like, the fact that you go from Manuela arrives in Barcelona, she helps 
Figurado after being after just being beaten up for being a sex worker. Um, <sighs> quick shout out to the overhead shot of the cars. Like it's <laughs> such a great shot of all the cars kind of like surfing around, hunting for their like chosen sex workers for the night. Yeah, it's just... and it's, it, it plays out very like are they just forced to pass through here for her to get where she needs to go, or is she come here to look for a Grado kind of thing? And it's it's this very like you know we're not going to hide it from you. Places like this exist. It's a, it's essentially like an open air brothel. Like it, it's just it's just people fucking and offering sex as far as the eye can see <laughs> and Agrado is is being assaulted but then like after Manuela helps her they're very like oh yeah if you just go that way like actually like, be nice to the guy that was assaulted <laughs> yeah her. go go find the tops over there yeah, like yeah. I, don't, I don't know if the in, if the intimation is that like he wanted to have a bot or he wanted to top for the or he wanted someone to top him for the evening and basically right. was trying to get Agrado to do it and then she was like no that's not that's not what I do like oh yeah and like the the casual reaction that Agrado has, like, she says beatings, like, multiple times in just such a very laissez-faire way and it's like, I mean, I'm sure it is just a an ugly truth of that experience, but it's just like, it's so dark that she'll just be like, oh yeah, and then the beatings did this to my nose, so I shouldn't have bothered getting a nose job in the first place. Anyway, now about my tits. Yeah, but... I mean, it's it's a fascinating, and obviously it's one of those things where, like, do we really have to centre trans narratives on pain yeah. or assault? But then there's also the flip side of it, it's like, but does ignoring that these things are very right. real right i think that's to... always i think that is always the problem with particularly trans stories but also i guess queer stories in general is like by pretending that it is entirely all just it's all just good you know like it is all so, just I, sunshine see, think... and rainbows are you doing a disservice or by doing that are you helping to like normalize and then like i i don't know i mean i'm not in any position to to rule on that i i think the general argument would be i think you can tell a trans narrative that doesn't actually depict Mm. violence against trans people and is instead some you can tell the story about what it is to be trans and not actually show the assault but have it be like an implication kind of thing yeah yeah i i i think i think showing queer people being beaten up for being queer is very similar to like the way that like sexual assault is used with female characters in movies where it's like we don't don't need to just constantly see this like we know it happens and you can refer to it if it's like plot important but given this is basically like standard par for the course we must do this in at least one episode of our big prestige tv show kind of thing it's like that feels shitty and yeah. and, and i remember you know it came up in um, the last of us part two where there is that trans character who you don't even learn is trans for quite a while after spending time with them and there was that big debate about like it's yet another trans story about pain but like this was more tied to like the gender-based duties of this cult and this character didn't want to be a priestess or whatever they wanted to be a hunter and it's more about that than it is we hate you because you are trans but it's still obviously sparked this like giant debate about um the depiction of trans people in media but like you know again i am not qualified to to weigh in and be like no you are wrong to feel this way <laughs> no but obviously it's, it's important for us to highlight that like these discussions are happening and there are better qualified people to listen yeah. to talk about them than than yes. us absolutely but yeah i mean i i love how humanistic all of this movie is i feel like there is no judgment the only character who has judgment passed on them and i feel like part of that is because they're such an such a late addition to the narrative is lola yes lola it's interesting they choose to even deploy lola at all you could see a version where you never meet lola you never even see a picture of lola 
because Lola is like, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but like that line of like, you're not a human, you're a fucking epidemic is brutal. (laughs) But like, and I know like it's quite difficult to, you know, even that it's like you're shaming an HIV positive trans person. But like, I think it's very clear throughout the movie, Manuela has no hang ups whatsoever about any of that kind of stuff. But this person has been like a hurricane through all these people's lives and has left this giant impact to the point we have three Estebans, (laughs) two of who would have been half brothers and stuff like that. But obviously that leads us to, I mean, my favorite flip of like an interaction is Agrado taking Manuela to meet Rosa and basically it going from Manuela asking Rosa to help her find a job, find something to do in Barcelona while she like tries to track down Lola. Pretend to be a whore so because <laughs> because Rosa is a nun who helps sex workers and a percentage of which are trans or also helps trans people and sex workers, but I guess there's a lot of crossover they're saying. But yeah, so she has to pretend to be a whore so that Rosa will help her. And then the ultimate reveal that like she became pregnant by one of these people that she's helping and that she is like seemingly in no way bothered by any of this, despite being a nun. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I mean, obviously a lot of people get shepherded into into the church that aren't necessarily like believing in all of the values but like Rosa is probably the most refreshingly like open-minded person in the film <laughs> given yeah, that's the, it's the flip from like when she goes from like Manuela needs Rosa to Rosa needs Manuela to the revelations of like how open-hearted and open-minded Rosa is about all of this stuff how, again how open-minded everyone is like the, mm. the amount of characters in this movie who drop that they've had like intimate relationships with women is kind of astounding like it feel, mm. I feel like every single main female character in this movie apart from Rosa's mother has been involved with someone who is either a woman or will eventually transition into into becoming a woman because it's obviously it feels like I I don't know what the exact timeline is of Manuela and Lola's relationship because obviously she says that like Lola Lola was like wearing yeah Lola was wearing bikinis on the beach and and fucking people and then shaming her for wearing a, a, a skimpy bikini or whatever so like it's not not that like Manuela knew Lola when Lola was Esteban and, and Esteban since became Lola. I think Lola was Lola when or a long way on the way to becoming Lola when they were together. So yeah, like zero judgment whatsoever by Manuela. Like like two of her only friends are trans people or, or like two of her oldest friends were trans people and like she you know, this theatre group clearly was like a huge part of her life and everything. And yeah, you know, the scene where like um you have the four ladies just sitting there getting drunk and talking about dicks and it's like <laughs> you've got this sort of like older actress who you uh, would assume would be a little bit more uptight, but she is in a she is in a lesbian relationship. You, you have this trans sex worker, you have a nun, and then you have a... Manuela's just Manuela. But that scene is, like, where I'm, like, one of the ones where it's like, okay, this is just fun, isn't it? Just these these four women just hanging out. Kind of it's so compassionate. Like, the fact that, like, they're whispering and, like, having discussions about kind of, like, just having sex and sucking cock. And then and then Huma walks in and just goes, it's been ages since I've sucked cock. And it's just... <laughs> and Rose said to be like, I love the word cock. And also prick. Giggle, giggle, giggle. <laughs> 
I do wish there was like more of that interaction in the movie because obviously so much of the rest of this movie is centered in pain yeah. in those kind of ways and like and like you do get these moments where people are like just having open conversation about these things like a grado scene with I don't even know the character's name like the actor who's playing Stanley in, <laughs> in the play where he just I do, I do like the subplot that like everybody in that production is fucking obsessed with trying to bang a grado <laughs> and a grado's like would you all just leave my cock alone <laughs> yeah he just walks into the room and is just like come on I'm on edge would you give me a blowjob she goes I don't do that anymore and then she's like oh fine right look you do that but you have to do me afterwards because I'm also on edge and he's like yeah alright <laughs> and then like <laughs> Nina is like cracking onto her as well and you know hates Manuela but is more than willing to crack onto a grado and, and like you would expect if this movie were made in the west it's like you're waiting for that shoe to drop of like one of these people is like I hate you and your kind or and instead it's like Grado was just like, oh, I'm sick of everybody wanting to bang me, kind of thing. Yeah, and then and then ultimately, like the Grado's plotline ends with the, the like we will discuss Humor and Nina, but like Humor and Nina can't make it to performance of, of Streetcar Named Desire. So basically, they close the theater and go like, if you want to stay, you can stay. I'm going to tell you about my life, or you can go and get a refund. And obviously, a whole lot of people leave. And then she just does this speech about like what it is to be her, which she does, as you said, like the, the nose breaking. And then you've just got people in the audience applauding, and it's refreshing to see kind of like no one is like yes they have to yes they have to include kind of people being like oh god really are we gonna look at this freak it would be naive to say the entire theater state so like you see like the old people are like disgusted by this and leave immediately but then like the younger more open-minded people "Eh, i guess we'll stay out of morbid curiosity and she's like running through how much all of her cosmetic surgery cost and just doing like a one-woman show essentially in a stand-up routine and i mean she's i don't know if it's supposed to have continued after that but a stint, from what we see she has a like three minute act that is supposed to replace a full theatre production <laughs> with no refund but I don't know if she just stayed and like just hung out and told more stories but they obviously she just did the stories about like all the various jobs she's met over the years and it's just like yeah so then there was they ran a train on me <laughs> fucking hell oh, god it, it, it's, it's just a, a nice warm scene that's very funny and like again it's those moments of like humor and levity that the movie drops and then around it you have things like Uma and Nina's relationship where it's like yeah she's a drug addict and we both kind of like we both kind of hate each other but we also love each other and it's it's such an interesting dynamic like I mean like even down to the fact that like the subtext of this is that Blanche and Stella are sleeping together in Streetcar Named Desire which gets this like weirdly like incestuous tinge to it (laughs) and like you know the obvious that there's a clear age difference between Uma and Nina as well. You know, Manuela just getting drafted into becoming like Uma's assistant kind of thing and and her first task is to drive her around Barcelona looking for Nina who's like just getting high and then like dragging and then they like just... (laughs) Is it Uma's car? But, like, she's left her bag in it, yeah. And then, and then like, they steal her bag by accident, and then when she goes back to get it, she's like, do you want to just be my assistant? Because that was really fucking solid of you to help me find my, <laughs> like, crack-addicted girlfriend. And she does, and she's just... She, they're just friends, and she pays her to be her friend, sort of. And then she fills in for Nina one night in Streetcar, as we said earlier, and, and is, is magnetic. But there's so much hostility from Nina towards basically everyone um particularly manuela like accusing her of like because she she plays it off as like oh i've learned all the lines from listening to it through the speakers backstage she's so good that it's clear that she it's more than that and then she has to reveal that like 
oh yeah, I mean, I was in a production of it 20 years ago, and also I saw your production of it quite recently, when my son died. <laughs> Nina is, like, very, like, oh, you're trying to replace me, and all of this stuff, and does seem to, like, be a human being when Manuela was saying that Esteban died watching it and everything, but is that the last time we see Nina? Uh, yeah, I believe so, because, yeah. like, obviously the, the final mention of her is that, like, she's gone off and gotten married to have, like, a fat, ugly baby. <laughs> I love that touch, yes, they had an ugly baby together, because straight people are ugly. Yeah, um, and, it, and obviously, like, but it's just, like, like, obviously Nina is kind of, like, a distraction, really, and, like, is, is so openly hostile to Manuela, but, like, when... Manuela is telling Huma about, like, her son and, like, she has that, like, flashback to, like, seeing his face and being like, oh, I need to... She I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Is it, like, to atone or is it just to, like, oh, no, I need to, like... I don't think she's meant to be, like, mega famous. But I am sure, you know, that was to her just an innocuous thing that happened. But then for her to actually remember the boy, there's got to be some level of guilt there and also that like this woman has come into my life and she hasn't in any way antagonized me and she's been a friend to me so like she's doing that nice thing of like she writes the autograph and the long dedication to Esteban. She's obviously big enough because like there's that obviously there's the striking shot of the poster of Candela like not Candela of, of Marissa Paredes kind of like up on the, up on the wall that's just so transfixing in the entire movie mm. yeah so I don't know what level humor is but like maybe she's just one of those kind of like because the vibe I get from Esteban is that he's gay wow <laughs> yeah or wants just, to fuck his mum either way. Or wants to fuck his mum. It's it's one of those two. But like, I, I just it's the vibe I get from Esteban is that like he's a seventeen year old kid who's obsessed with an aging theatre actress. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I'm sure it's like within that world, Umar is famous. But, like, she can walk down the street and no one's going to yeah. recognise her kind of thing. Like, I would not recognise anyone who I saw in Hamilton if I just saw them. Like, so, you know, but, like, in that setting, if I saw them, like, near a theatre, I might be like, oh, hang on. <laughs> but if I just saw them on the street, I wouldn't know who the fuck they were. Yeah, writes that nice uh, dedication to him and everything. And then, and then I think we, we do kind of have to circle back around to Rosa in terms mm. of, like, being the actual sort of driving force the kind of the last chunk of the movie, which is Rosa is pregnant with, with Lola's child and has unfortunately caught HIV off of this. She also will have a tough pregnancy regardless. So it's yes. kind of like this sort she of She has to have a C-section, yeah. Uh, she can't move because she's got hypertension, of, uh, hypertension, so she needs to like, lie down all the time mm -hmm. and ultimately dies during a cesarean. Yeah, and like she, she's, she's living with Manuela, who initially is like, no, you can't fucking live with me. But then, like, agrees to take her in, is posing as her sister when she takes her to the to the doctors and everything, and the doctor's a dick, but um, that's fine. And then it, it's, like, such a bond to the point that when Rosa's mother comes to to see her uh, for, like, the first time, you know, like, Manuela tells her she's pregnant and she's suffering and stuff. And she's like, I actually think even though you're her mum, she's better with me. And then she's like, yeah, she said the same thing. <laughs> and then, like, given how it ends up with her essentially kidnapping the baby, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess, you know, Rosa just does not have a great relationship with her parents. And, like, her father, who looks decades older than her mother, clearly has problems. I believe, I believe it is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Constantly asking everyone how tall they are 
and how old they are, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, it's that heartbreaking scene where, like, Rosa is being taken to the hospital and she asks to go past the park where her father walks around and she spots the family dog and the dog is so excited to see her and then her dad comes over and goes, like, who are you? dog will do it to <laughs> Who are you? That dog likes everyone. Like, it's Sap- a real slap in the face. That being said, Sapic is the best boy. He's a very good boy. I like how she says she's only five foot six, not that tall. I would say in the 90s for a woman that is actually somewhat tall, (laughs) but never mind. Maybe they grow them real big in Spain. The poetic irony, tragedy, whatever you want to call it, of of Rosa naming her child Esteban as well. (laughs) So like they've both, they have both known Lola. They have both born a child from Lola. They have both named their child after Lola's dead name. And like, you know, pretending to be sisters. And clearly there was a very strong bond there by the end. It's all just so like, I don't mean it in the in the gross way, but incestuous. And, you know, like it, it's all so tightly knit and they're also, their lives are so interwoven and everything. And like the fucked up dynamic of like Manuela going forth and raising the child of her friend and her former lover who and the child is named after her former lover and also who she named her dead son after and like yeah it's all it's pretty fucked up but like yeah. again the movie's playing it completely straight as in like yeah no this is a completely logical series of events to happen which yeah. I- there is a little bit of like you know like they attend the funeral and lola finally arrives like 10 minutes from the end and is like I, I've always wanted a son, and then Manuela like has to tell her that like, oh, I was pregnant when we last saw each other. Having to tell her about their son and 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 breaking her heart, and and then taking the baby to meet her, and and like Rosa's mother walks past and assumes it's like just some person, and then gives Lola the picture of Esteban, and and her read the first sort of page of his notebook, and then for that that same picture to end up in the dressing room at the end is is really somewhat heartbreaking for a character that we are sort of taught to somewhat resent throughout the movie. And then as you said, like, it's Rosa's mother who, like, like, Manuela has to tell her the truth. They're like, oh, that was Lola. That's the father. And then Rosa is the, sort of the only person in the movie that has, like, ugly feelings towards a queer person, a trans person. And it's, you know, it's the, you know, blaming Lola for for Rosa's death and like such an interesting comparison to the way that Manuela is around Lola and humor is like both of these people like I mean obviously it's not like Lola gave Manuela HIV in the same way that or it's not it's not like like Lola was HIV positive when when it's not like Lola was HIV positive when she was with Manuela but it's it's interesting to watch she does she does have a little bit of a yell at Rosa about why would you fuck Lola Lola's like she's been shooting up for 15 years like why would you where would yeah you and like fucking everything that moves and, and yeah, yeah but it is interesting like she's so much more compassionate and forgiving like she does have outbursts but like is never at any point blaming people for like the contributing to the death of her son in comparison to Rosa who's kind of a lot more of a frayed nerve at the time of what's happening and so is therefore kind of like oh that's the monster and using dehumanizing language and whatnot even though we've got we don't get to know Lola enough but like at least we get to see her somewhat as a person before the end of the movie but again as you said earlier like there is a version of this movie that does not feature Lola at all yeah it's, I was almost surprised to see Lola the first time even I saw it's, her it's, yeah. it is the driving force of the movie though is like that is the reason why that's why she 
came to Barcelona, yeah, to find Lola, which could have been a complete fool's errand. Like, Lola could have moved hundreds of miles away, could have moved to a different country. Like, who knows what happened to Lola kind of thing. But, hey, Lola rocks up at the funeral. And then, yeah, she she just decides to just take the baby rather than put up with Rosa's bullshit. Ma- Rosa's mother is called Rosa as well, right? Uh, just, I think she's just Rosa's mother in the credits. I could have sworn she's referred to at some point as Rosa as well, but, okay, Rosa's mother, she's like, I'm not putting up with that bullshit. And, like, I think she writes the letter, she leaves a letter to Agrado and, um, or she leaves flowers and a letter to Agrado and Uma. I like that Agrado, like, cracks onto the delivery guy and he's like, cool, bye. <laughs> She's called a grado because she likes to make everyone's life more agreeable. Yeah, leaves the letter and is like, yeah, I don't want the baby around all this negativity. And like, you know, she's got to like look after the father as well and everything. So I just, I'm just going to take the baby and I'm off back to Madrid. I think she's from. Yeah, she, she goes off for two years and then comes back and gets to have the, the final confrontation where somehow reveals that Esteban three has like... <laughs> been magically cured of HIV. Yes, is a miracle baby that, despite being the offspring of two HIV-positive parents, is just fine, and they want to do tests on him. And while she's in town, because Barcelona's like, you know, the hub of all medicine, while she's in town, she looks, you know, she checks in on them, and Lola has clearly passed away in the time since, and, and that picture has made it back to them, and there's also a picture of Nina, as you said, and like, I don't know, it just ends so abruptly. On some level, I almost wish that it kind of just ended with her leaving with the child, rather than coming back and having the full extra final conversation because there's a lot of like two weeks later three weeks later six months later two years later like i don't know i kind of just wish it ended with her leaving and writing the letter and like maybe we see that the picture's in the dressing room and and we can infer what we will about lola and everything but you know that first sort of 40 minutes a bit wishy-washy for me and i i, I find the ending a bit abrupt but I, i'm being hypercritical so <laughs> i think it's my thing with a lot of our movies where like i come away from it thinking like especially the first time i watch them i'm like yeah i think i enjoyed that and then i can't get it out of my head and i keep thinking about like themes and the way they interact and like that's my favorite kind of movie is to come away and like it doesn't leave my head and all i want to do is think about like the way that things interact and obviously that's my like douchey wanky way of thinking about movies but it's definitely like my favorite thing i mean that's that's how i felt about the handmaiden which we did in in volume two like i watched it and enjoyed it and then like the next day i was like thinking about the scenes all like i was like replaying like large swaths of it in my head i was like god i can't get over how good that film was kind of thing and that's what took me from like oh i'm pleasantly surprised by this to like oh actor this this is stealthily one of my top films from volume two kind of thing and i'm grateful for for you putting it on the list for that reason but yeah that is all about my mother so there we go we're we're almost done with this miniseries i cannot believe it honestly like i I feel like we just got started and we have 25 ahead of us and i don't know if i've got it in me again but here we are this will be my final edit so i'm sort of free after you hear this one yeah we're also going into like a two-week delay of recording so we're gonna be we'll see what happens when we come back to this one but next week we are covering Otrevi yes yes we are which I have never seen so that will be fun we're going French for the last one with Claire Denis who is a grumpy French woman <laughs> she is so yeah I look forward to that next week hopefully we can, you can repeat your success with Handmaiden and not do a Florida project we will see so Matthew yes will there be movies there will be one more movie but it will have the same episode title as this one and I will be replaced by Penelope Cruz <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs> Bye. Still I didn't know.